The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. And so I saw this journey Brooke went on from being an object and in fact, a globally celebrated object of beauty to becoming a human being publicly. She insisted on her humanity and the messiness and showing these darker sides of herself that were less easily reducible and not commodifiable to the world. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I'm speaking with Lana Wilson about her Emmy-nominated documentary, Pretty Baby, which, as you just heard, traces the long career of Brooke Shields. And as you'll hear in the interview, Brooke's personal and career development are interesting in themselves, but this documentary also works on a broader level, investigating the depiction of female sexuality in the media of the 70s and the 80s especially. In this sense, Wilson's documentary complements some other excellent recent documentaries like The Disappearance of Shara Height and Judy Bloom Forever, which is also Emmy nominated. This is not Lana's first foray into documentaries about celebrity. In 2020, she released Miss Americana, which follows Taylor Swift. If you enjoy this conversation, please do follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Lana Wilson about her documentary, Pretty Baby, which you can watch on Hulu. Lana, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So congratulations on the film. Congratulations on the Emmy nomination. It seems to me that one of the key structuring strategies of your series is contrasting and sometimes collapsing Brooke Shields as a real person and Brooke Shields mm -hmm. as a symbol. And she represents, as you note, different things to different people at different times in her career. Let me start with a theme, I think, that starts right in the first episode, right at the very start of the first episode and really runs through it and really through the whole series. We see, as we said, Brooke, the person, but we also see what Brooke Shields as what basically her friend, Laura Linney, suggests is kind of as a product. You show mm -hmm. her being made up selling both household goods and beauty products almost from birth. But you also show her around the house making coffee in the morning. Can you talk about how you balance this portrayal? I think when I first started getting to know Brooke and her history and looking at this incredible trove of archive, I think what I'm always looking for is how can I surprise audiences by helping them feel a really personal gateway into this person who perhaps they might think I have nothing in common with them. I will not relate to them in any way. And often when you're working with a celebrity, that is the case. You think, oh, they look Brooke. She's this ultra beautiful supermodel and I can't relate to her in any way. Child star, da, 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 da. But part of the reason she was such a phenomenon and so famous is because she was a symbol of all of this other stuff. And when a celebrity is a symbol, that means there's some kind of moral value that's ascribed to them. You know, it's good or it's evil, 
These are like moral fables in the tabloids that we're all treating as stories that we need to learn lessons from. And what's so interesting and unique about Brooke is, as you've mentioned, she represents different things in different times. And morally, she represents different things at different times. And so what I was interested in was what did she represent and why? But what I found to be really potentially a universal way in was Brooke, like almost every girl on the planet is taught as they're growing up that being a beautiful object is very important. I can speak from my own experience. I think that you are taught that being desirable and beautiful is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing. And it kind of overrides everything else. And every girl goes through some moment in their life where they start to think, there's more than that. There's other things beyond that, or they wrestle with it. Should I be this or should I be that? And so I saw this journey Brooke went on from being an object and in fact, a globally celebrated object of beauty to becoming a human being publicly. She insisted on her humanity and the messiness and showing these darker sides of herself that were less easily reducible and not commodifiable to the world in a way that I thought was really brave, but that also captured something about this journey that so many people go on in their lives. So that's why I wanted to immediately structure it as Brooke going from being an object to being a person. The side note here, in the fall of 1982, I started college and uh, just early on one day, it was like a contagion. There was people were turning to each other, you know, strangers on campus are turning to each other and saying, Brooke Shields is on campus. Brooke Shields is on campus. And <laughs> you went to said, Princeton? No, this was uh, Brown. Which, oh, okay, okay. Which yeah. totally makes oh, sense. she was, right. <laughs> my classmate was Laura Linney. No surprise mm. that she yep. visited Brown. Anyways, yours is a number of other excellent recent documentaries that deal with women's sexuality, or maybe better said, the depiction of female sexuality, notably in the 70s, the disappearance of Cher Heights and Judy Bloom Forever, or two that come to mind. There's a lot to be asked here, but I'm very interested in how Brooke experienced her work at this time, sticking to the theme of appearances and reality. Pretty Woman, Blue Lagoon, and Endless Love, the George Exchange commercials. These are the obvious instances. And Brooks tells us that despite these depictions, what she was feeling at the time was, to give a little shorthand of this, not ecstasy, <laughs> and sometimes more like disassociation. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that kind of dichotomy between what she was projecting and actually what she was experiencing? I think she experienced it in a few different layers. The first is as an actor and as a kid who loved movies and loved acting. And so I think a part of her felt frustrated that directors were not really talking to her about the character. You know, there was not deep psychological, emotional work happening. She wasn't learning how to act and how to get better and better and better. And she really wanted that. I mean, this is someone who's brilliant and a straight A student. So I think a part of her felt frustrated that she was treated as like this beautiful, famous person on set. And all she needed to do was just stand and stay the line. And that was it. And no one was giving her anything more than that. There were some points, like the moment you mentioned, where on the set of Endless Love, where the director like twists her pinky on her toe to get her to cry out in pain, which he then uses in a scene that's supposed to represent sexual ecstasy. There are disturbing moments like that happening. But there's also this bigger thing just about her general success and fame in the 80s, because it wasn't just movies. It was also commercials, ads, modeling, product lines. She was everywhere and she was incredibly successful. She, she didn't experience that as like, this is the time of my life. I've made it. She certainly had a lot of fun times, but it wasn't like her dream come true. I think because she genuinely wanted to be 
an actress, you know, and wanted the like juicy roles and interesting parts and all of those challenges and wasn't creatively fulfilled. So there was that, but then there was also the fact that Brooke's mother, Terry, was an alcoholic. And I think one of the biggest things driving Brooke was a pressure to do well and to be successful and to bring home the paycheck to keep her mother alive, both financially, economically to bring that security, but also because she was her mother's entire world. And she felt that profoundly. So I would say that more than anything else, that Brooke's relationship with her mom and that dynamic with an alcoholic parent shaped her experience of her peak superstardom in the 1980s more than anything else. What's amazing is that in college, in the wake of a book that was published under her name, Mm -hmm. she pretty clearly distances herself from its composition in your series. She identifies herself as a virgin. And this plays into what is in effect, not intentionally, but it does play into what is in effect an early 80s backlash against the perceived permissiveness of the 60s and 70s. And we actually see her on stage with Nancy Reagan just saying no to drugs as well. She becomes this avatar and punchline, as you know, of virginity. And this is pretty amazing for someone who had been, you know, tarred as sort of Lolita, although that's a strange reading of Lolita, yes. but we'll leave that alone for a second. But a big change from her perceived image before to her perceived image at that point. That was one of the most interesting things to me looking at her as a cultural symbol. She was a highly sexualized child star, the source of a huge amount of controversy for these very sexual roles and advertisements that she was in. And when I talk about the moral value, I think a lot of people were like, this is bad, sexualizing a child. This is very bad. At the same time, this was not an experience that only Brooke Shields was having. There were a lot of other highly sexualized young girls in the late 70s. And one of the ideas in the film is that part of this was a reaction to second wave feminism. The culture is saying, okay, you women, you're not going to be traditionally feminine. And by that, I mean, you know, submissive, polite, subservient, then we'll replace you with little girls and we'll sexualize little girls. If you're insisting on being adult women and not traditionally feminine in all of these other ways. And I thought that was a really provocative and powerful idea. And so Brooke is one of many, but probably the most controversial, the tip of the spear in a way among sexualized teenage girls in the 1970s. But then in the 1980s, as you say, she's like a mirror being held up to American society and how it feels about women and girls at different points in time. That's what I think. And so in the 1980s, Brooke Shields was so controversial, so popular. When she came out with this book where she said she was a virgin, it was like a relief to people. It was like the ending of the story they wanted to hear. They wanted to know, okay, all that stuff in the 70s, that went a little too far. Things are changing now. There's a new purity culture now. And Brooke Shields can be a vehicle for that for all of us. So it was something that large swaths of the American public really loved and embraced. Oh, thank goodness. You know, my teenage daughter is obsessed with Brooke Shields. Now I can see because she's a virgin, she's the kind of role model I can accept. Brooke enrolls in Princeton in the fall of 1983, and this really does seem to be a turning point for her, both intellectually and artistically. And for an academic like me, uh, it's very heartwarming, even though it starts out kind of with Brooke sad and lonely. Let's start with the academics. Brooke seems to have an understanding professor who encourages her to form her own hypotheses. And this is a breakthrough Mm -hmm. for somebody who's always been enacting someone else's script, a director's, perhaps her mother's. Absolutely. When Brooke goes to Princeton, 
this is a big deal at the time is no other insanely famous actresses had ever gone to college. I mean, Jodie Foster had, but she was not nearly at the level of global fame at that time that Brooke Shields was at. So this was just not something that had been done before. Brooke was walking away from a lot to do this. Four years in college from age 18 to 22 is a big risk to take. This was something she wanted more than anything. And I think that kind of maybe subconsciously, a part of her knew, I am not only the way I look. I'm not only my beauty, being an actress, like there actually is more to me as a person, as an intellect beyond all of that stuff. And so she went there and at first was very funny. And I actually talked to several of her old classmates, couldn't include everyone in the documentary, but people were like, yeah, no one at Princeton wanted anything to do with her. They, They saw themselves as being there for high intellectual pursuits. I don't want to be associating with this celebrity who model who's coming here. So she was incredibly lonely. And because of her closeness with her mom, it was really hard for her to not just be like, get me out of here. Like, I'm going to go back to my mom, to this safe zone and not have to experience this loneliness I've never felt before. But to her credit and to her mom's credit, really, she stuck it out and things started to change. And she, you know, she did well. She worked so hard. She did well on tests and including, I remember one point, this is not in the documentary, but she mentioned to me a little detail There was one day where she took a multiple choice test, a big test, and they post the results of the test. And she went to look and her name was at the top of the list. And all the other students were looking in shock because they thought she was all beauty, no brains. And she felt so relieved that it was a multiple choice test. So it was not something that was like, it wasn't like an essay question where you could debate the merits or say, oh, the professor just saw, I'll give a good grade to Brooke Shields. It was multiple choice. This was real. And so that was the moment it became real for her. The moment you mentioned was huge where she had not been trained by anyone, by her mom, by the directors. She'd never been told, what do you think about this character or this part or what you're doing? I'm curious, what's your opinion on that? No, that that had never happened. So one day in class, because Brooke is studying very hard, but never raises her hand in class, a professor pulls her aside and says, hey, you haven't been saying anything. And she's like, oh, I prefer to just listen and absorb. And the professor says, well, look, I see you've underlined a section of your book, right? She's like, right. The professor says, is that just random underlining or what brought you to underline that part? And Brooke's like, no, I was drawn to that idea. And this forces her to then speak in class and say, you know, I was drawn to this idea I underlined because X and a whole conversation came out of that. And that was the moment that Brooke realized that her opinion was meaningful and that she had instincts that mattered. I think what was such a big moment for me learning about this and seeing it in the film, and this is the ending of the first half of the film, is that accessing that kind of instinct is absolutely what Brooke was doing later in her comedy work, for example. I mean, this this was a real life-changing moment of you have a mind, you have an opinion, but also you have these instincts that are meaningful and you can channel that later in all this other stuff that you're going to do. The other thing you're hinting at there is the artistic development here, which is that she lands in the Triangle Club of Princeton, comedic musical group dating back to the 19th century that writes its own musical comedy. For three years, the early 20th century, a little writer by the name of Francis Scott Fitzgerald wrote the wrote these shows. It really seems like this is a breakthrough for Brooke. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. The change, her change on stage. She'd come yeah. incredibly more expressive, more physical. Her voice yeah. drops an octave or two and comes right. less breath. It, it's really just opened her up, I think. I love what you say about her voice because, yeah, I noticed that when she was on talk shows after college, 
it's like a different person. <laughs> She's totally. so, look, she was always smart and articulate, oh, but yeah. there's this kind of confidence and seriousness to her on talk shows later that I think is absolutely from her education. And yeah, it's like Princeton, she's collaborating with other students and she's in all kinds of shows where she's dancing in the chorus. She's doing all these different things. She has the space to fail and to experiment. She's not just this beauty object who's headlining the movie, but not spoken to by the director. You know, she's actually engaged and learning and she just had this like thirst for it. And you can see she just absorbs it like a sponge. It seems to lead her to these new roles on Broadway. And then the very highly memorable term on Friends where she plays Joey's uh, obsessive delusional girlfriend. And then a four year run is suddenly Susan. And again, really plays off the kind of different what she represents. Suddenly Susan, they really contrast her glamorous image with all this un uncanny ability she has for physical comedy. Maybe they go too far with it. Maybe they too much of it, Brooke says. What works there a lot is like who you think she is and then who she actually is. For me, the film's overall journey is looking at Brooke the person and at Brooke the cultural symbol, but basically tracing this journey from object to human being and telling the story of her finding her agency and her voice. I really see that Princeton is where she finds her voice and her opinion. And then the second half of the documentary is basically what happens when she uses that, whether it's in terms of her creative instincts as a comedian or in writing a, a really brave, compelling book. The Friends guest appearance that you mentioned, she has this role. She's improvising little parts of it. And there's this one moment that I focus on where she kind of takes a risk and does this really crazy villainous laugh on the show. And it really works. It totally works comically. But then what's interesting and that I saw over and over in Brooke's life post Princeton is that there is some kind of backlash, often a kind of patriarchal backlash to what she's saying or doing. And that friend scene, in, in that case, the backlash came from her own partner, Andre Agassi, who was so disturbed by Brooke's really excellent performance. You know, she's playing a really sexual character who's obsessed with Joey, as you say. So it's a sexual role, but she's like owning it and playing it in this hilarious way. But because that for him is so disturbing that Brooke, even though she's playing a role, is sexually interested in this man, he storms off of the set, goes home, smashes all of his tennis trophies. And so I thought that's another reason that I wanted that to be the central part of the second half of the series, because it expresses both Brooke finding her creativity and her instincts and her voice, but then also the repercussions can be when she does that. About Andre, you, you know, something that I had never considered, which is that they are both have these deep experiences with parents who were also basically business managers and, and then some. And Gavin DeBecker, the safety consultant, author, simply a natural for the camera, says that as Brooke departed on Andre's jet after their wedding, he realized that she was fully surrounded by his world. One kind of control had displaced another. I think what's so fascinating is that all these relationships are complicated, incredibly complicated. And when Brooke meets Andre Agassi, to me, what seemed so wonderful about their relationship was that he was the first person to say to her, you want to be an actress. So what do you want to do? So go do it. What's stopping you? I'll support you. Let's come up with the plan and let's execute it. You know, you right. are an actress, set your goals high, let's do it. And so he did bring all of that into the relationship and all of this enabled Brooke to professionally separate from her mother, which was totally essential in order to go in the directions she wanted to go in. The downside was that she was moving from a relationship with one very controlling person to another. Brooke and Andre eventually divorce. 
Brooke remarries Chris Henchy, who is himself a successful comedy director and producer. When they have a baby, Brooke falls into serious postpartum depression. As she comes out of it with professional help, she decides to speak out, to write a book about it, really write this one <laughs> as opposed to the previous one. Yes. And again, we see her perfect image play off against the reality, a common reality that that hadn't really been discussed broadly in our culture mm-hmm. to that point. Brooke had always wanted to be a mom and have kids. And there are so many images in our culture about the beauties of motherhood and the joys of motherhood and what a perfect mother looks like. But the reality, even today, I would say, I actually was pregnant while making this project. So this all felt very personal to me. The reality is really different than what we think it is. And it's really easy to put pressure on yourself. And then when things are not what you hope and dream, it can be devastating. And postpartum depression specifically was not something that was really talked about when Brooke's book came out. So she comes out with this incredibly raw, honest, unflinching account of her postpartum depression. Again, there is a patriarchal backlash. This time it's in the form of Tom Cruise (laughs) going on the Today Show, condemning Brooke for getting help from medication basically, because he's against medication. He completely also misjudges who she is because he mm-hmm. says, oh, she doesn't understand what she's taking. She doesn't understand the history of psychiatry, yeah. which Tom Cruise believes he does. Um, right. and, and she responds by basically writing a New York Times op-ed. Again, it seems to be a mis- misunderstanding of Brooke and Brooke. Yeah, exactly. She responds to this. So this Tom Cruise thing is a huge amount of attention. And Brooke writes this incredibly clear, powerful, and even quite funny New York Times op-ed, just being like, no, that's wrong. Here's the reality. This is what it's like. This is a book that has gone on to really change millions of people's lives. Brooke even passed some legislation to get more funding and research for postpartum depression. It is a really remarkable moment of, and again, it it comes back in a way to this turning point at Princeton, I think, that gave her this confidence and this depth that she could bring to the table at this really crucial moment in her life. I want to talk about one of your final scenes. You shoot Brooke, Chris, and their two teenage daughters at the dinner table. This is an amazing scene. It really hit home for me. Again, it could be a little bit personal. I'm contemporary Brooke and my kids are almost exactly her kid's age mm. and they they do we were watching the godfather the other day and they'd be like oh yeah i've already seen this scene on tiktok so <laughs> our kids are watching classic cinema just on tiktok but i think i'd marvel at it anyways because it really opens up some of the problematic nature of some of the early work in a way which is sensitive you don't criticize mm-hmm. Brooke. she has a nuanced view but they discuss her early work they're respectful but they are willing to trace the cultural changes the changes of technologies the sense of agency mm-hmm. And really, of course, uh, at the heart of it a little bit, it's their mom who's naked in these films, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But this is an amazing scene. Can you talk about just what struck you about it? I always knew that I wanted this film to primarily tell the story in this really immersive way in archive. But I knew I wanted a tiny bit of contemporary Brooke there. At the beginning, we come to her in a few moments and at the very end, I was filming a day in her life. I thought I really want to, you know, to be able to see you, especially when people have lived through this journey through postpartum depression. I wanted people to see for the first time your daughters, teenagers at the end of the movie. I think that will be so powerful in itself just to see, oh my God, here they are. You know, she has this incredible family now. And a part of me hoped maybe the dinner conversation will be amazing, but you never really know. What happened was we sat down for dinner and I just said to them right before they started eating, have you guys seen any of your mom's early films? And the conversation, it was just like kind of lighting a fire. It was like a spark that lit. For me, when I film 
observational verite material, very often I feel, you know, intrusive and awkward and like I'm in the way and stuff like that. But very rarely, and these are the moments I live for, occasionally you feel like the fact of your presence is not this intrusive thing, but it actually is putting a frame around something and giving an opportunity for people to have conversations with each other that are really important and that they've been wanting to have, but have not really had the chance to. And this really felt like that. I asked that one question and this whole conversation came out of it that you see, you know, eight minutes of in the film. And it was so interesting because as you say, it is a really respectful conversation with many different points of view about Brooke's early work. Brooke has a point of view in it because she did it. She was a kid. It was the late seventies and early eighties. Her teenage daughters have a completely different perspective on it, but in the same way, they have one perspective on how it feels to post pictures of themselves on Instagram. And Brooke has another perspective on that. And I think there's no easy answer to any of these questions. And they voice a lot of this stuff. But what was most striking to me was not just what they were talking about, but how they were talking, thinking of how Brooke grew up with her mom, who never asked her opinion and where like, Nothing like this conversation would ever in a million years have happened. And Brooke genuinely feels that even if she doesn't agree with her kids, she wants to hear their points of view and she wants to be challenged and try to learn from them in a way. And so I thought the fact that you see this family dynamic where people are debating and listening to each other, but also respectful and loving at the same time. I mean, honestly, how rare is that in any family? You know, it's kind of like the biggest success of all. And so I thought, wow, how incredible that we get to capture that, but then also provide a gateway in for, I hope other people to keep these conversations going after the film about, well, what does it mean that so many teenage girls are posting bikini pictures of themselves on Instagram now? I personally think that so much of the conversation today is about, well, she, you know, often a teenage girl, she should be doing this, she shouldn't be doing that. And there's a lot of judgment and slut shaming and stuff like that happening. But the reality is that almost everyone today on social media, just like in the late 70s, early 80s, we're all just imitating what we see around us. We're imitating mostly advertisements, sometimes movies and TV show, but the images we see everywhere have such a powerful effect on us we're all imitating those and we're all trying to feel good about ourselves in the framework we've been given, which right now is likes on social media. So I think that there are questions we should all be grappling with, but especially the people who are creating the dominant visual culture, people, me and filmmakers and advertisers, like I think we should really be looking at ourselves and what we're showing in terms of how we represent female sexuality. Are we really representing it in a broad, inclusive way? Or are we representing like one incredibly narrow idea of what female sexuality is? So I hope that that final scene is like a jumping off point for the audience to keep asking themselves those questions after the movie ends. I think it's a really good point. Coming in, I thought I was going to learn more about Brooke Shield. I thought that's interesting. I, I don't know that much about her. And it was mm -hmm. a great education in Brooke. But it's also, as you note, about a broader important subject around the depiction of female sexuality and how there's a continuity between what we saw then and what we saw now. The process of sexualization is one that is still very apparent in our world, as you show. So totally. congratulations on the film. Thank I you. really enjoyed it. It made me think, as you said, it made me ask a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, 
who was I at that table? I was Chris. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Chris is so great, and I think yeah. that I think it's really great that he's listening to these women and his family have this conversation, and he does weigh in a bit, but he's also really taking it in. You know, he's like dominating this discussion of female oh. sexualities. Brooke invites him in. Chris yeah. says, "I'm yeah. learning," and I was like, "Yeah, brother, <laughs> you sure are. You are." <laughs> so, thank you again. What are you working on next? I'm working on a feature documentary about psychics. I'm editing it now, and I have my first fiction script that I am rewriting and hoping to shoot next year. Well, that's great. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Why don't I ask if you have a hidden gem documentary film that you've seen, could be in the past or more recently, that you don't think gets the attention that it deserves? I am obsessed with the film of Men in War. It's a three and a half hour long French film. It's set at a veterans rehabilitation center in California. It's a film that alternates. It's, it's kind of in two totally different worlds. One world is the world where we're at the U.S. Veterans Rehabilitation Center. And we're filming with a camera, like sitting at the table during these totally devastating group therapy sessions between veterans. And then the other world is shot completely differently. It looks like a red or something like that to me, like a much more cinematic look. And we're with the veterans at home with their families, often with their wives and their children. And we get a sense of the pain, but also the beauty of the forgiveness and the acceptance of their families, both about what they've been through, what they've done, what has been done to them, all of that. It's really extraordinary. And that's a film that I think is just a, a masterpiece and one that offers so many things to learn from that I think is under-recognized. Mm -hmm.